0: Forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessa Crispin. Public Intellectual only exists because of the generosity of its supporters. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com publicintellectual public intellectual. In exchange for a little bit of money, we will give you bonus episodes, and exclusive writings, and so on. That's patreon.com slash public intellectual. And thank you again to all of our supporters. We are gathered here together yet again to talk about the abolition of marriage. What would a state that does not prioritize and privilege one particular form of relationship over all others look like? How would we begin to think about redistributing the rights that come with marriage and allowing people to legally and emotionally structure their lives in a way of their own choosing without being coerced or pressured into one particular dominant form of relationship? So we're talking to Claire Chambers today, the author of Against Marriage, a new look at what a state that doesn't privilege marriage and bestow it with special rights would look like. You speak and write about John Stuart Mill's arguments that marriage oppresses women, and obviously a lot has changed since then, probably not as much as, and not as quickly as people would assume. The the idea that rape was only outlawed in marriage... Within decades uh, of today is a little alarming um, in, in Western in Western countries. Um, so, why are you talking about um, ending marriage rather than continuing reform?
1: Well, I think the answer to that um, is partly to do with the legacy. Actually, that that those decades, those centuries of unequal marriage law have left. So. Marriage as it is today is a combination of both a sort of legal regime of rights and duties, but it's also a profoundly symbolic institution that people enter into because they, it has resonant meaning for them. It's traditional. It is um, a state of relationship, which is sort of really affirmed in our societies. And when you think then about what marriage means in, in that sense, a lot of that meaning does call back to its relatively recent you know, sexist and heterosexist history and its long history of um, being oppressive to women and to lesbian and gay people. So I think that the kind of the simple legal reform, which is a necessary part of bringing about equality, doesn't necessarily do enough, perhaps not, um, not nearly enough to address that kind of symbolic legacy of inequality. So that's really, I think the thing, there are these two things going on with marriage. It's a legal institution, which is, you know, susceptible to reform but it's also this sort of symbolic institution, which has these meanings that, that persist.
0: It seems interesting how, I mean, so you t- write about uh, studies that show how um, housework and childcare divisions are of labor between genders in a heterosexual marriage somehow yeah. get worse after marriage. Um, and I find that very interesting that it uh that there is a divide even between live-in relationships and married relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so that's some of the really interesting sort of social science research that I've encountered in, in researching this topic. I mean, it started for me, that idea, when I read, this is not so much a social science research piece, but a kind of anecdote piece, the book by Susan Mousehart, which is called Wife Work. And she describes in that how she has been living with her partner before they were married, but then after the marriage, they, you know, they go home and she feels compelled to engage in the kind of housework tasks that she never before thought were necessary, you know, cleaning the skirting boards and, you know, really extra forms of housework. And she puts that down to a sense that now she was a wife, she had a different sort of, duty to, to, to or a sort of standard to uphold. And she asks in that book, you know, why am I doing these things? What is it that makes me want to do these things? Um, and some of the social science research then does sort of back that up. So I think you're referring to a study that I cite in the book, which says that mm-hmm. if you look at people in different forms of relationship, cohabiting or not single, unmarried and so on, um, it's the married women who do the most housework of all, um, and the married men who do the least housework of all. And the, um, you know, the, the thought there is you, know, you don't suddenly get more housework to do. There's not more work created when, when you shift from cohabitation to marriage. It's the same amount of work. But what changes is the idea of the roles um, and what a certain role brings with it as a kind of normative expectation. And so marriage does seem to have that, that power. And in fact, we want it to. People who support marriage and want to maintain marriage, part of its appeal is that it brings with it you know, strong norms about what it is to be married and what sort of roles you should fulfill you know norms like commitment and and perhaps monogamy and stability and those kind of things so we want marriage to bring with it these kinds of strong norms and it's part of that that the 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 legacy of marriage is is strongly sexist and the sexist norms are part of what comes with it i think Mm -hmm.
0: the the word compelled is so interesting there uh, in the idea of being Um, compelled suddenly out of nowhere to, you know, take a toothbrush to your bathtub or whatever, um, now that you're married. Um, Because the symbolic power of marriage really is, uh, I think that we have this idea now that we have free will and conscious choice not to engage in that. But it it does seem like a little bit of a trap or a sort of self-delusion that we think that we can sort of overcome this history just by choosing not to.
1: (laughs) Does that make sense? Right. It does. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of a theme of of my work more generally, not just in marriage, which is that I think, you know, we are obviously um, choosing individuals. You know, we have autonomy. We make choices. We are not Determined or forced to follow cultural scripts, but at the same time we all of our choices are fundamentally within a social context, right and the meaning of our practices is partly what we intend it to mean, what our own understanding of our practices is, but a, but a large part of what we do is understood and mediated by the social meanings that are of, you know that, that are given to it from our our context a marriage is like that so People who get married today who might think of themselves very much as being non-traditional marrying couples, you know, they might reject various forms of the traditional sort of wedding ceremony. They might reject the, um, you know, the, the sort of father of the bride giving her away, or they might reject the vows to a bay. Also, and they might kind of tweak and change the marriage ceremony, let's say, in various ways that take it away from that traditional norm. And they are doing something different. Then they are making their own individual sort of choices and putting their own. Um, personal stamp on that institution but why do they want to be married as opposed to simply be in a relationship well it's because they want also to import some of the meaning of that institution so it's not that any of us is is forced only to play out the, the meanings given to us externally but it's that those meanings are part of the context that we act in always and they, they're not sort of clearly um separable from our own our own perspective i suppose
0: Does the fact that we can now choose to, or that it's, um, it's presented to us as a choice, a choice to marry or to not marry, um, does that make it harder to talk about marriage reform in the sense of, um, You know, well, if you if you want access to these special rights that are given to married people, then choose to marry as if that were as if that were possible to just go out and decide to get married. But but does the the fact that it's no longer such a um, necessity for uh, economic and social reality uh, for particularly for women who didn't, you know, didn't used to be able to have their own money and property and et cetera. Uh, Does that make, does the choice aspect of it make it more difficult to talk about reform?
1: Well, that's very interesting. I mean, that is a question that has come up a lot in in the UK context with the debate that's been going on over the last few years about civil partnerships. So when in the UK, the way it works is that before there was same-sex marriage, the first um, legislative move was to introduce same-sex civil partnerships So um, with that, there was an inequality between different sex couples who could only have a marriage and same-sex couples who could only have um, a civil partnership. And then same-sex marriage was introduced in, I think it was 2013, I believe. Um, And at that time, then that brought in an inequality between same-sex couples who could choose either a marriage or a civil partnership um, and different sex couples who could only have a marriage. And there was a debate at the time about whether civil partnership ought to be opened up to different sex couples or not, and it wasn't, but it is going to be by the end of this year as a result of a campaign and a Supreme Court case by the Equal Civil Partnerships campaign. And the reason I tell that sort of story is that that example of that terminology, the question of whether you should be able to choose between a civil partnership or a marriage, um, which bring pretty much the same legal rights and duties, they're largely identical um, legal institutions. I mean, a lot of the objection that was brought in to people saying we want to have the option of a different sex civil partnership was, well, why? You can just get married. You can just choose marriage. So you don't have to, um, you know, have a religious marriage. You don't have to have a traditional white wedding. You can just go to a registry office, get married, and thereby access the legal rights and duties that you want for the protection of your relationship. Why do you need to complain about, about having a civil partnership as well? And so that kind of choice trope definitely came in in that debate. And now one of the questions is, well, whether the civil partnership model would be enough to solve the problems of people who don't have the traditional um, romantic relationships, but might need protection. So if you have, for example, siblings living together and relying on each other or friends or whatever, you know, should they be able to enter into a civil Partnership and there's a kind of tension between thinking. Well, on the one hand, we should just provide these institutions, which people can then just choose to opt in. And if they don't choose to opt in, that's that's up to them, and that's their problem. But against that idea, there is the very real fact that requiring people to choose to opt in to an institution in order to get protection for their relationships or for their individual position within that relationship, you know, relying on their choice to do that to opt in does in practice leave a lot of people vulnerable um, because for whatever reason, if they haven't opted into the relevant institution, then they don't get the, the legal protection that that institution would bring. So I think this question of you know whether we can rely on people just choosing to opt in, whether we can just say, well, the choice is up to you and if you don't want it, that's it. I think that does feature quite heavily in in these debates. And I want to say that you know in something like relationship regulation, which really ought to be a mechanism for protecting the vulnerable and securing equality. We can't rely simply on having people choose to opt in to those kinds of protective regulations. We need to have a framework that adequately, you know, protects people in vulnerable situations regardless.
0: Uh, How do we start to think about um, finding different pathways to distributing the rights that come through marriage?
1: So um, are you asking about the sort of how do we get there strategically or or what is it that I would suggest we do,
0: (laughs) if you see what I mean? Um, Um, Well, things
1: like, uh,
0: things that sort of automatically come with marriage, such as uh, privileged immigration status and so on. Yes. Uh, The the difficulty then is... uh, uh, well, open borders, or you know, the the sort of right. utopian idea of what replaces that, but how do we start to think about uh, pragmatically uh, restructuring these types of rights?
1: Well, I think that does really have to depend on the particular social context, the particular polity, the particular historical moment, and there's not going to be a one sort of one size fits all model for how to reform things. So. Uh, For example, when the United States Supreme Court ruling in Obergefell v. Hodges came in, saying that say that states could not deny um, same-sex couples the right to marry, you know, there were some very traditionalist uh, lawmakers in sort of southern states that said, "Well, what we should do then is we should just stop recognizing any marriages at all." And you know, you might think that I would approve that because I want the state to stop recognizing marriages, but I think that would have been (laughs) at that point a terrible move, right? Because it clearly would have been the result of um, you know a desire to to, to specifically stop recognizing same-sex relationships, it would have been a result mm-hmm. of homophobia, not a result of you know the kinds of motivations that I'm talking about, which is about equality and protection for the vulnerable. So I don't think there's a kind of one-size-fits-all model for what we should do when. I mean, the, the issue you raise about immigration is a really tricky one. I think that's the area where, of course, what any one state does in terms of its own model for regulation of relationships you know, it comes up against the willingness of other states to recognize that or not. Mm. So what I suggest in the book is that for, for immigration purposes, I mean, as you say, one possible utopia for some people is open borders, but mm. others will reject that as, an, as a utopian prospect and say, no, there has to be control. And I think the issue then is if we have limits on migration and if we think there is some reason why those limits should be accompanied with what we currently have in many situations, which is a sort of spousal right to migrate, you know, mm-hmm. what is that spousal right to migrate doing? What is it protecting? Is it protecting um, sort of relationships of dependency? You know, is it there so that we can ensure that financial dependents are allowed to be brought in, or is it there just because we want individuals to be able to choose who they bring with them? Or is it there because there's something particular about um, family reunification? Or what is it that it's, it's, that it's there for? And I think very often it won't be specifically marriage that is the, the thing that it's, it's trying to protect. It's going to be something like relationships of care or dependency or so on. And so there are various other workarounds for ways that we can reflect that in the immigration system. So one suggestion is, you know, if you want to have somebody migrate to be with you and you're a citizen or you have the right oh. to reside in a particular country, perhaps you ought to have to um, take on financial responsibility for them for some period of time, You know, sign a document saying that you will cover their, you know, their financial needs for a year or two or something like that. There's various different models of what you could do. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a, a state which is itself not wanting to issue marriage certificates, not wanting to recognize marriages, And then it's facing the question of what do its citizens do when they move to a state which requires marriage, right, for for immigration rights. Um, I mean, what I suggest in the book is that in that situation, the marriage free state could issue some kind of certificate that would be as minimal as was consistent with other states recognizing it for that purpose, right? So um, that wouldn't have with its sort of ceremonial features of a marriage that wouldn't Engage in other kind of rights and duties in in the issuing state that would just sort of be a document that you could you could present. So you're going to need sort of interim measures of that kind in some of these cases. Um, But the particular route to what I call the marriage-free state will will vary by time and place uh, according to the particular political situation in that context.
0: There does seem to be, because marriage exists, a understanding both by the state and just in sort of society, whatever that means exactly, um, that any relationship that's not specifically marriage is kind of non-serious or flip. So the idea that uh, letting somebody choose uh, who they uh, immigrate with or... have a child with or whatever outside of that relationship is seen as being sort of like insubstantial or unstable despite the obvious instability of uh marriage <laughs> as it exists today right. yeah um so how much of this is just a a um a, i don't know discrimination against or a a, a a viewpoint that anything else just can't possibly be serious enough um, to grant rights to.
1: Yeah, I mean, that really raises the fact that the, the, the use of, sort of marriage in, in public discourse and the use of marriage as a kind of public policy goal is very often serving as a proxy for something else. Right, So when people talk about the need to promote marriage or recognize marriage because it has various benefits and they might talk to things like benefits for children or financial stability or family stability or something of that kind, they're using marriage then as a proxy to refer to something like sort of stable, committed relationships, which of course... As you mentioned in your question, you know, not all marriages are stable and committed, and many relationships that aren't marriages can be stable and committed. So the word marriage becomes used like a proxy. And the thought then is that any relationship that's not married fails to display those valuable features of stability and commitment or whatever it might be, which is it's which is just a mistake. Mm. Um it's not true, but it also can very often conceal or carry with it other forms of discrimination or prejudice. So um, the image of what it is to be you know, a married or an unmarried parent, for example, you know, will often bring with it a whole host of images about race and class and a sort of demonization of the unmarried as being in some, ha- you know, some way sort of feckless and irresponsible in various ways. And so a lot of baggage gets often imported into a sort of public policy agenda to promote marriage. And what you can see then is that when people use marriages, you know, justify marriage by referring to, as I say, to things like, you know, marriage is good for children, marriage is good for educational outcomes or whatever, they're using it in that proxy way. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of, um, yeah, stigmatization of, of unmarried relationships. And that was one of the worries and is still one of the worries of people who are very much in favor of um, equality for lesbian and gay people, but skeptical or worried about same sex marriage as a, sort of pioneering move because the worry there is that a focus on same-sex marriage actually sort of entrenches this idea that in order to be acceptable in order to be respectable in order to be equal you know you need to be married you need to be sort of assimilating with that ideal um which as i say has not only sort of heterosexual norms attached to it but also it has sort of race and class-based norms Mm. so in the usa for example um I think it's uh, um, something like only one-third of African-American children are born to married mothers. And I think um, a vast majority of white American children are born to married mothers. And so what you have then is this idea that, oh, well, the only sort of stable family form is, is a married family, but that's a stable family form from within a, a white American um, model. Whereas within the African-American sort of stable family form, the much more common outcome is a, a child raised by a single mother supported by a network of often female relatives, you know, grandmothers, sisters, aunts, and so on. And this is analysis that comes through in Catherine Frankie's book, Wedlocked. It's an amazing book about the kind of racial elements of marriage as it's understood in, in the US. And so with that, you know, when people talk about marriage as necessary for, for stable families, again, that's importing a particular view about what counts as a stable family. Um, so, in the, in the in the United Kingdom where I am, one of the ways that this kind of trope is played out a lot is in a, in a class-based uh, sort of stereotype, where the single mother is often a kind of you know a shorthand for some stereotypical image of a you know young, feckless, working-class woman who isn't able to provide for her own family, which is you know a highly classist um, and sexist model of what it is. So, you get marriage being brought in the various other kinds of discriminatory tropes and and used as a proxy for something else that actually is important, which is, you know, stability, loving relationships and so on.
0: Instead of recognizing marriage and romantic relationships as having this sort of special status in the state. um, And one of the reasons that we give for needing marriage to be, to have this special recognition and all these rights is because of, raising children, to create a stable environment for children. And, but now that marriage is so unstable, um, does it make sense to kind of shift that relationship or is any sort of special designated relationship, um, does that necessarily lead to things like inequality and a lack of liberty?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say about the need to sort of protect children is that um, no matter what happens there's always going to be children who have unmarried parents that's just an inevitable consequence of um, relationship breakdown or unplanned pregnancy or, or you know the death of one parent so there's always going to be children without married parents and so we really do have to ensure that if we're thinking about children's well-being that we don't only think about marriage because that's not going to capture all children um and indeed um marriage, when we think about marriage as being good for children, what we're really saying there is that it's marriage is being used as a proxy for other kinds of values like um, stability and commitment and sort of loving family um, background, which can be one parent or more than one parent. So thinking about sort of focusing on parenthood as opposed to marriage is actually more sensible when we're thinking about promoting the interests of children. And we might well want to make the institution of parenthood something we sort of focus on in terms of thinking about our symbolic um, uh, support that we might give to that relationship in terms of encouraging um, parents to think of, their, the sort of the duties they have to provide us a stable, loving home via that relationship of parenthood rather than simply relying on marriage. I mean, parenthood is always going to be something that the state has a legitimate interest in because the state has a legitimate interest in protecting children Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the state, I think, you know, the state sort of thinking about that institution is, is perfectly legitimate and the right way to go about protecting children in that way.
0: But then do we, do we run the risk of the state privileging some forms of parenting rather than others um, in the sense of uh, go, raising children outside of even just like a couple form you know, my, my friend was trying to uh, have a child and wanted some sort of legal uh, framework uh, because she was going to raise it with her sister and was finding it right. very difficult. So, uh, if we do shift the focus, are we are we in danger of not um, taking into consideration less conventional forms of parenting?
1: Well, that example is another reason why um, trying to protect children through protecting marriage just isn't going to capture all the children. Because as you know, the example you give is of parents who aren't married to each other and wouldn't want to be married to each other because that's not the kind of relationship that they have. So there's a a sort of separate question, which is who counts as a parent? And of course, that is an area which, you know, is a whole new area of debate and investigation. And parents can include parents who who are genetically related to the child, parents who are not genetically related to the child, parents with different relationships to each other. And I think that's something certainly that we have to get more up to speed with as a society, Um, you know, in particular with the increasing use of reproductive technologies, with the increasing acceptance of lesbian and gay parents and the kinds of relationships that can happen there where you might have, you know, more than two people actively engaged, not just in creating a baby, but in bringing up a child. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that, that sort of changing our understanding of who counts as a parent and what parenthood looks like again, to to kind of capture the diverse reality of contemporary relationships is something that's really crucial to do.
0: And do you think... As and I'm mostly sort of familiar with the situation in in America, but in America, fewer and fewer people are marrying. Um, But the people who are tend to be the people who are already sort of in these privileged positions um, in in, in white women marry more than black women, uh, you know, people who are financially well off more than uh, the poor, et cetera. Um, Right. So when we're thinking about reforming, um, how do we take that into consideration? Both uh, the declining numbers uh, of actual marriages in America, but also how it's sort of um, being held on in these sort of more powerful uh, demographics.
1: That's right. And as I understand it in terms of, you know the the move to recognise same sex marriage is also a move that has generally privileged, um, you know, relatively wealthy white gay men who are getting married much more uh, commonly than um, than black lesbian women. So there's again there's a kind of inequality within same sex marriage, just as we have been seeing for a long time within different sex marriage. And again, I think that's something that I touched on earlier, which is the way that a focus on marriage as the ultimate goal and sort of default position can become very much imbued with sort of racial and class um, prejudice and stereotypes and and can just miss out a whole number of kinds of families and kinds of people. So that's a problem. There's the kind of uh, the, the intersectional analysis of marriage, I mean, leads me to have two thoughts. One is precisely that focusing on marriage can reproduce various forms of, of, of privilege or of prejudice, but also that those unequal patterns of marriage demonstrate for me what's one of the really key problems with focusing on marriage as the route for um, protecting relationships, which is that you just leave people who are not married very vulnerable when you do that. Mm-hmm. And so, the kinds of regulations that I propose in in the book the way of regulating personal relationships that I propose depends not on the status that a couple or any other number of people have acquired for their relationship. So it doesn't depend on whether they have acquired a status like marriage or civil partnership, but it depends instead on whether they are engaging in what I call a relationship practice that needs regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, And a relationship practice might be something like parenthood, or it might be financial dependence or cohabiting, or being um, in a caring relationship or whatever there's various kinds of relationship practices we can engage in and my thought is that we should design regulations that you know serve the need of protecting the vulnerable and protecting equality Um, that can apply to anybody who is engaged in those relationship practices without needing to get the status of of marriage or or even civil union to, to get that sort of protected status. So that's the way I would do it. So I wouldn't be looking at the kinds of relationships that, uh, that somebody's having you know, thought of as a kind of one form of relationship with a status that's been acquired. I would rather think what kind of practices is this person engaged in and do those practices you know, fall under the kind of um, relationship practices that need to be regulated so as to protect people's interests and equality.
0: Yeah. I was interested in that part of the book about regulating relationships because it it seems like we sort of default to the expectation of a, of a spouse or a romantic partner, um, just sort of fulfilling those roles. Um, And the idea that a single person, whether this is true or not uh, in reality uh, of not having somebody to, to do that. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? It, It just seems like it's, Marriage has a sort of a, a, a hold over our imaginations as far as what we think of as being um, a relationship or a sort of uh, interdependency uh, when emotional lives are much more um,
1: complicated than that.
0: But the idea of regulating those in a, in the, in a similar way is, is an interesting one.
1: Yeah, well, that's absolutely the case is that, you know, the kind of the default model that we might have always thought of might be the traditional image of the, the emotional relationship is this one relationship which bundles together lots and lots of different practices. So the traditional model of a married couple would be two people who would do all kinds of things together. They would live together. They would share money. If they had any children, they would have them together. They would be each other's next of kin and, and so on. And All these things would be all bundled together in this one primary relationship. And of course, many people nowadays do still do that. They do still live in relationships that have that sort of one primary relationship form. But many other people don't do that. We might have caring responsibilities for elderly relatives. Um, we might have co parent with somebody that we are no longer in a relationship with. We might have financial um, interdependence with, I mean, you gave the example of you know, two sisters or two siblings raising a child together and so on. So. In fact, these relationship practices that we engage in are often very diversely sort of spread between different relationships. And so it seems to me that the question shouldn't be to sort of identify which one of these relationships counts as a relationship or, you know, are these people a couple? That, that doesn't seem to be really necessary for the state to, to do. What the state should be doing instead is thinking, okay, we have got all these kinds of relationship practices Some of them don't need any special regulation. Uh, Some of them do need special regulation. If they do need special regulation, well, why is that? And there's going to be reasons to do with vulnerability, to do with equality. Or there are some areas where we simply need them to be determinate in law. We need to know things like who does this house belong to, who is responsible for this child and so on. And so once you sort of know, okay, we've got a relationship practice here that needs regulation and you know why it is that it needs regulation, that I think gives you quite a good indication of the sort of relationship regulation that might be appropriate because it tells you, well, we need some regulation that can fulfill this sort of purpose. Um, and now, you know, in the book, it's kind of a crucial part of it that I don't suggest what the content of Relationship regulation should be because, in all the various different relationship practices we engage in, you know, each of those is a whole new public policy area, which readers and listeners to this conversation will have very different views about. You know, we'll all have different views about things like what immigration regime we should have, uh, what taxation regime we should have, should there be any inheritance tax, should there be any exemptions, and so on. And I don't try and answer these questions. In the book that would be too much mm-hmm. for the for the one one volume so it's rather just to sort of invite readers to think okay think for yourself what you think the ideal way is of regulating people who aren't married who are engaging in these practices now so you know what do you think the state should do about people who um who cohabit but aren't married what do you think the pe- the state should do about people who aren't married but leave each other money and, you know, inheritance and so on. And so it asks through all those questions. And my sort of suggestion is once we actually think through what the ideal regulations for unmarried people doing those relationship practices would be, the marriage free state, as I see it, would apply that version of the regulation to everybody, Mm -hmm. um, whether they're married or not. So it's about trying to get the regulation fit for purpose for people who aren't married. But then once you've done that, you don't need anything special for people who are married. <laughs> so under under a marriage regime, what tends to happen is that the state still has to work out how it's going to regulate unmarried people. This isn't a new thing that the state has to do under my proposals. The state still has to know in, in a marriage regime, how are we going to deal with unmarried inheritance? How are we going to deal with unmarried cohabitants and so on? It's just all too often um, the state deals with unmarried people inadequately Mm -hmm. by leaving them vulnerable and so my suggestion is let's get the rules right for unmarried people and then we don't need special rules for married people after that
0: and we should also talk a little bit about love um the one thing that i have noticed because we've done a, a an episode or two um about what a an abolition of marriage would look like and, and these sorts of things, um, in the past. And, uh, people ask, you know, why do you hate love? (laughs) Um, and it's, it's, that's a curious response. Um, so yeah, what does love look like then outside of this sort of marriage state and how would that, uh, and this is a little bit beyond your sort of purview, but, um, what, what does love look like outside of sort of, a, a a marriage state
1: well i guess that what love looks like outside of marriage is different for each Mm -hmm. one of us and there's no unique um, there's no kind of single answer to that question i mean when i when i talk about the book you know i often will say well that the title is against marriage and when we think about marriage there's all kinds of things we might think about which are you know very happy things like celebrations weddings parties um Romance and love is absolutely one of those things love, stability, care, commitment. And, you know, as I say, the the title against marriage isn't against those features of marriage, right? It's not against the kinds of values we might find in a marriage and encapsulated by marriage. And my view is that those features of marriage just can remain intact in a marriage free state because people who are not married love and people who are married will be in love before they marry in most cases. So I don't think that the marriage-free state need have any impact on, on what it means to love or how love is. The idea is that it takes away the idea that a certain kind of state-recognized relationship is necessary to, to affirm that love, I suppose. Forever.